Hi, I'm Darren Peppard. Welcome to the Leaning into Leadership podcast, the podcast dedicated to today's hardworking leader. Join me every Sunday for leadership insight, inspiration, and a little pep talk to keep you rolling down your road to awesome. Hey, my friends, welcome into episode number 69 of the Leaning into Leadership podcast. My guest on the show today is Jed Derryberry. Let me tell you about Jed. He began his education career in 2001. He's been featured in GQ magazine as the male leader of the year. He met President Obama as the South Carolina honoree of the Presidential Award for Excellence in Math and Science Teaching, and he was named a top five finalist for the South Carolina Teacher of the Year. Since leaving the second grade as a teacher in 2015, he's been leading professional development across the country and training the next generation of educators through his teaching in higher ed. He is a multiple-time published author and an expert on play and the neuroscience behind it. Jed and I had an amazing conversation, and you're going to hear it right on the other side of this message from the sponsor of today's episode, Peer Driven PD. Hey, leaders. You know, teachers and administrators don't always see eye to eye. So it might surprise you that over 86% of teachers and administrators agree that we need more full-time classroom teachers leading our professional development. That's where my friends at Peer Driven PD come in. Peer Driven PD finds some of the best teachers in the country and documents their instructional strategies that work in real classrooms every day, and then they make the content available to schools everywhere. It's kind of like a master class, but for teachers. Imagine that. Your teachers are learning from other amazing teachers who, just like them, are gifted and passionate about driving student achievement. And if you've got your own superstar teachers who deserve some exposure, Peer Driven PD will visit your campus and film your own teachers doing what they do best and share it on the platform for their colleagues and everyone else to see. What a huge morale boost that can be for a district. And just so you know, Mike Alpert, who's the company's founder, has been a guest on this very podcast. Check out episode 49. Mike's a former teacher and administrator who has worked with schools from coast to coast. He really understands the need for engaging PD that teachers will appreciate. Look, I've seen this work firsthand. It's unique, it's interesting, and it's just what you need if your teachers want more out of their professional development. Visit PeerDrivenPD.com to request a quote. Tell them the Leaning Into Leadership podcast sent you, and they'll give you a free trial access so you can check out all of their content and decide for yourself. As well, they'll give you an additional 10% off your first year's subscription simply for mentioning the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. Go to PeerDrivenPD.com today. Again, that's PeerDrivenPD.com. Hey, friends. April is Autism Awareness and Acceptance Month, and here at Road to Awesome, we're really excited to share a brand new children's book titled, I'm Autistic and I'm Awesome. I'm Autistic and I'm Awesome is an illustrated children's book that celebrates the uniqueness of our children on the autism spectrum. Families and friends can use this book to come together, share their experiences, and celebrate the superpowers gifted to their children as they make and navigate their own world. This book is for everyone, families, parents, siblings, and friends who cherish their relationship with someone who is autistic and awesome. This amazing new book by Derek Danziger is available now at RoadToAwesome.net and on Amazon. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Hi, Jed Derryberry. Hey, Welcome into the show, man. How you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I'm so glad to be here. I, I've, I have enjoyed our back and forth banter before the official recording started. It, it just sets us up for a great conversation today. I'm, gl- I'm excited about it. It certainly does. So we'll just maybe peel the curtain back a little bit, folks. We were talking about how people mispronounce our names. Um, yeah. You know, if you look at Jed's name, the way it's spelled, I, I would have guessed Dairyberry or, you know, you know, but it's Dairyberry. You know, my last name gets yeah. butchered a hundred different ways. 
my my really good friends know the Doran Peter story, which someday I need to tell that story here on the podcast. But uh, that's not why we're here. But that was a fun conversation. So, <laughs> Jed, just real quick for my listeners who maybe don't know who Jed Derryberry is, just a quick background, man. Yeah, so I'm an educator from South Carolina. I'm sure you can hear the southern twang in my voice as you're listening. I've been teaching um, since 2001, so that puts me at about 22 years in this uh, career. Um, I taught first, second, and third grade during my elementary um, stint, and now I work primarily in higher ed. I teach children's lit and fine arts for the elementary classroom. That is a big passion of mine, both of those, but specifically the arts, because I worked at an um, elementary school that was focused on the arts. Um, the, we have an organization in South Carolina called Arts and Basic Curriculum, and, and we were trained in how to integrate the arts. So I'm bringing that into my teaching now. Um, also author of three books. I do a lot of consulting and speaking around the country, um, mostly work with schools, um, but I do some conferences and things like that as well. Um, love the work that I do with teachers. Everywhere I go, I, I say that my goal is to equip, encourage, and empower the teaching profession. And through my higher ed work, through my consulting work, through my books, um, through my social media, that's what I try to do. Um, uh, when I'm not doing teachery things, I spend lots of time reading. Uh, I, I have a hashtag, Jed Reads. If you look that up on any social media platform, you'll see every book that I've read for about the last four years. Um, but I've, I've not always been an avid reader, so I love helping other people find a passion for reading. Uh, there's a great story about how I became a reader. Maybe we can get into that, too, for the sometime in the Absolutely. podcast. Yeah, I'd love that. And, you know, for those who can't see you, um, you're actually in a bookstore, too. So that just I am. I am. Know, <laughs> takes it a little bit deeper, right? You know, just yeah. Uh, hashtag yeah. Jed Reads, hashtag yeah. Uh, yeah. Jed's in a, in a bookstore. So Jed lives um, in a bookstore. That's right. Absolutely. So I want to I want to chase something that you said there uh, in, in your introduction, and that is this this transition that you made from being in an elementary classroom to now teaching elementary classroom mm -hmm. teachers. Yeah. One, mm -hmm. what what made you want to pursue that? And two, let me give you a little bit of back backstory here to get to question number two. But when I became a school administrator, I discovered very quickly going into other people's classrooms, oh my gosh, if I knew the things that other people were doing, I'd be a better classroom teacher. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. question mm -hmm. two, in this role, what are you learning about yourself back when you were a classroom teacher? Wow. That is, that is such a great – those are great questions. I, I love the, the answer to them. Okay, so I got into working in higher ed around 2010 while I was still in the classroom. And the first higher ed class I taught, the students actually came to my classroom after school was over. So they learned about elementary teaching in an award-winning elementary classroom. That By that point, I had started to win a few awards, and um, they brought me on at the higher ed level, and they said, we want you to teach our students. And, and at first, I was kind of hesitant about it because I didn't know if I would enjoy it. But at the same time, I was also teaching a – um, Promethean board class for our district. And yeah. I found that I really liked, I, I liked teaching adults because here's the thing that I learned is that the adults that I taught, they loved to be taught just like I taught first grade because we have this um, interconnection to our first grade experience, you know, second grade experience as, as adults. But we also, we learn through play and we learn through hands-on, we learn through the arts. And I brought that same mindset into my college courses I brought that same mindset into my district PD that I was doing, and I just fell in love with it. And and at the time, everybody kept saying, Jed, you should write a book. You should write a book. And, and I was like, you should influence. They said, you should be influencing how teachers learn to teach. And, and I just started going with it. And next thing I know, I had another course here and another course at that college. At one time, I had um, a course at four different colleges. Um, and then that following semester, I picked up a fifth college. And so I was doing all this work adjunct. Some of it was online. Some of it was in person. Some of it was a hybrid. Um, some of them came to my classroom. Sometimes I went to their campus. I mean, it was just, uh, so that's how I got into it. And I realized that I loved the work because the feedback that I was getting from my college students was, 
we need more learning like this. We wish more professors would do this. We miss more professors, but, um, you know, we just feel a connection because I really worked hard at building a connection. They weren't just students who were coming in and leaving, you know, even though I only saw them, sometimes only saw them once a week. Um, I, I just felt uh, very strongly about building a connection with them to, um, I always tell them once a dairy berry, always a dairy berry. So that means when you graduate, you're not done with me. You always have access to me. You always, if you get in a classroom and you need a fun idea, if you have something goes wrong and you need some a hand, some insight, some wisdom, they, I'm their teacher. I'm connected with them for life. I'm invested. And so that's how I got into it. Um, what am I learning about myself through this process? <laughs> 90% of what I was doing in those first five years was trash, and I wish I could redo it. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I think, you know, I fell in line with so many of the things that I was taught in college. Um, and, you know, because that's all we knew. You know, I th we only right. knew behavior charts, and we only knew direct instruction. And we only, you know, those were the things that I was taught in the late 90s about being a teacher. And what I'm trying to do in this role now is help show students who are going to be teachers and those of us who are still in the field that there is a different way and it's more fun. And I think it's more impactful um, the way that I'm doing things now versus those first four years. Although, you know, if you ask any of the students I had those first four years, they loved the classroom. I had a piano in my classroom. Yeah. Um, it we, we sang and danced every day to songs that we made up. Um, there was lots of arts, but, it was different then. I was doing things based on just because I, it felt right and not what I knew right. was right. And now that I know the neuroscience behind some of these things and um, know the power of the relationship in these things, I, it, it feels much more intentional. And I feel like the growth for me and my students is, is a lot different now than it was those first you know, four or five years. I want to come back to the neuroscience stuff here in just a minute, but you said something in there that I want to maybe go a little bit further with, and that's you made me reflect as you were talking about working with those teachers and, and what they would tell you and how it, you know, had you reflect on your first four or five years in the classroom. It made me reflect on going through my doctorate program, and there were a handful of different people that we had as instructors in, in our doctorate program. And some of them were practicing superintendents or, you know, practicing district level administrators. But then there were a few who really had never been a school leader. Uh, there was mm -hmm. one guy, and this is the one that just jumps to mind and, and always jumps to mind when this type of a topic comes forward. Really, really good guy, but so heavily just steeped in theory. Um, he was a co-summer school principal for one year, uh, you know, one summer. So like two and a half hot minutes, he was, you know, an administrator and working with, you know, all of these people in, in my cohort who were building principals, district level leaders, you know, that type of thing. And I found a real struggle in learning from somebody only bringing theory to the table. Mm -hmm. And I think that contributes mm -hmm. to what you're saying, you know, those first four years in the classroom, I was the same way. You know, I remember my first mm -hmm. two years in the classroom, I was like, uh, now what? You know, here's your keys. Good luck. Um, you know, holy cow! I, I, I think most of anything in teacher school. I, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. Well, because the 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 knowledge versus the application is so the the vast. It's just vast. Um, you know, it's it's a gully. It's the Grand Canyon, if you will. Um, your college years are on one side of the Grand Canyon, and your application of that is on the other side and when you go into your classroom for the first time it, it is so overwhelming it takes years to really find your footing as a teacher um now i know that some people might listen to this and say oh well then i don't want my kid to have a first year teacher yes you do you absolutely oh, yeah. want your kid to have a first year teacher because here's the thing they don't know what they don't know and they're going to try every single thing they can to be the best person they can for your child i know it because they're trying to they're trying to keep swimming. They're trying to float, you know? Uh, so they're going to do whatever it takes. So, so don't, don't think less of first year teachers, but do know that it is a learning process, this job. And, um, you know, I, I tell my students that when they get in there, um, they're going to have to forget a lot of what they learned in college 
at first because what you learn in college is is basically what we learn in content is content how to deliver content right right um, one of the things i think that we miss in our higher ed programs is the human aspect of what we're doing you know we miss that i think there needs to be more um, psychology and more um, humanity and you know what they need we mentioned this earlier there needs to be more neuroscience um, i asked teachers across the country um, about their neuroscience education you know how much neuroscience have you had and i would say usually in out of <laughs> a thousand people there's there might be one out of a thousand right that had a neuroscience course yeah. you know and that's Does our my one, one child psychology class count because if it does, then <laughs> no I can say yes. But no I don't think that, that yeah, I didn't figure that it did. That is just that is just a snippet of the iceberg. Um, just back at the beginning of December, um, I did a workshop where we made a little diagram of a brain on a shower cap. <laughs> and I helped teachers <laughs> understand the frontal lobe, parietal lobe, and all those different parts of the brain. And we talked about what each one did, but we did it in a fun way. We, we drew it on a shower cap, and we, we blew up a balloon put the shower cap on the balloon and then we drew on the shower cap. Um, and it was, it was silly. Uh, but I guarantee they remember those major parts of the brain and um, you know, some of the things, some of the different functions. Um, so, but anyway, back, back to your topic, um, you know, specifically like some things that I learned. Um, and I want to say this to every, so everybody here is, is that, you, you know, those first few years, sometimes you think, you know, everything. Um, I don't know everything. And every day is a new learning experience. And every classroom I walk in, even if it's the worst teacher I've ever been in the classroom, there's something in there that I can learn. Um, and that's why I love the consulting work I do. I go in and out of classrooms around the country. Um, I'm I'm learning more now about teaching, even 20-something years in. I'm learning more now than I ever did. Um, and I think that's a, an important aspect for all of us is to remain teachable, remain teachable. Don't ever think that you're the expert. Um, there's always something else that you can learn. Oh, I love that. That's that's super powerful. And, and you're right. I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, same kind of thing. You know, I'm in classrooms all over the country, too. And it's first off, it's really empowering. And, and you're right. Mm -hmm. I love how you said that, that no matter you know, ah, the quality in the classroom, you can learn something when you're in that room. It made me actually mm -hmm. flash to a specific room I was in. I don't know, October maybe. And, you know, thinking, wow, this is one of the worst lessons I've ever seen. But, <laughs> you know, as 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 the consultant and as the person who's coaching that leadership team, when we stepped out of the room, you know, I had to be ready for, okay, tell me a positive that, that you found in that mm -hmm. classroom. And I had found a couple, mm -hmm. you know, to be honest with you, there mm -hmm. were a couple positives there. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting uh, going in a lot, a lot of classrooms uh, and, and getting to see so many great things. And, it, it also, well, you can see, you can hear it in my voice. It gets me fired up. It gets yeah. me really excited. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I want to go to, I, I want to go to the neuroscience a little bit deeper. Um, you know, your, uh, your book, uh, The Playful Classroom, uh, really gets, gets deep into this and the neuroscience behind play. So I don't know that I have a specific question. I just, I just want to just lob that softball over to you mm -hmm. and let you run with yeah. the neuroscience of play and what, what maybe the listeners really need to know mm -hmm. about that topic. Well, it's, it's, it's a loaded topic and, and in, in that there's lots in that topic, not that it's controversial, but, um, it is, um, when I think about, the perception of what it means to play in the classroom. Play is often looked at as free time. Play is looked at as something we do when we're done with the hard work. Play is viewed as um, a fluff by some people. Uh, play is, is viewed as just for children by some people. But when you start to look at what happens in our brain when we play, how we get lost in the flow and time seems to stand still, and the subconscious of our brain starts to work on problems and solutions that we didn't even know we had. And then all of a sudden, have you ever been in the shower, um, Darren, and, and had a great idea? And you're like, oh, where'd that idea come Constantly. from? You know, you're like, where did that come yeah. from, right? And it's like, oh, that's a great idea. It's because the subconscious of your brain was working on that. And when you got in that shower, you got in that moment where you let everything go, you know, and the idea came. That's what play does for us. So we can take that moment. It, it, you know, I know we talk a lot about Finland. 
Finland, they have, you know, 15 minute breaks every hour just to run around, play. Um, but also they because they realize what that's doing for the brain is rejuvenating the brain. It kills me to think about our high school students starting class at eight o'clock in the morning, not finishing till three o'clock. And all they got was a 30 minute lunch period. No. That is ridiculous amount of strain on the brain at an age where the brain is not even fully developed. It needs those breaks. It needs those times. And, and, and so in the idea of the playful classroom is that you're going to also bring that play into the content and learning so that while you're learning, you are playing at the same time. And if you're doing those things at the same time, it's storing those memories in different parts of your brain so that it can, it's called the part of your brain that, um, calls up that information when you're not thinking it's called the default mode network It's because your brain goes into default mode and it's working back there. And, um, that's where the ideas come from. That's how we're able to solve problems and find solutions that we need. Um, there's an, a great, um, book that we read, um, during the writing of our own book, it's called the playful mindset. It's by Dr. Anthony DeBenedict and he is a medical doctor. He is not an educator. Um, and he talks about the the medical effects of playfulness on our bodies and how it helps our brain to um, heal itself. It can heal from trauma. It can, it's neuroplasticity um, kicks in so that it literally is able to rewire the way that you think, um, the way that you connect with others. And um, a, a big thing that he talks about in the book is the ability to um, increase one's social sociability. And if there's ever been a time where we need to have strong sociability skills, it's now. The internet is taking some of that away from us because the only way we know how to interact with each other is in a screen or in a in a, a chat room or on a, a blog post or in you know and um, uh, the Facebook comment. You know, have you ever gone and just looked at some of the Facebook comments on on news articles? It's terrifying. It's oh terrifying my. that that is yeah. our. It's terrifying that that's our our yeah. ability to be sociable. Um, bringing play into our, not only into our learning spaces, but into our lives. It increases all of that. Um, the neurotransmitters that are released when you are playing, um, all of the feel good ones, you know, serotonin, dopamine, catecholamines, neopinephrine, anadomina, all of those are released and, and help us. And, and I don't know if this will embarrass you, Darren, but serotonin has a, 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 a it has a really added benefit to the body that a lot of people don't know about it, uh, but it's good for your digestion. So serotonin, mm. it, it, it helps you poop there and it helps you. Poop. Hey, there you go. There yeah. You go. And I talk about that. I talk about that on every podcast that I've ever been on or anytime I talk about this book, because man, if, if you're constipated, you're not happy. You know, if everything's oh, working no, like it's supposed to be, you're happy. You're in a better mood, right? same thing yeah. i mean it's the same thing for our same thing for our students in our classrooms if if all of those feel-good chemicals are released students are in a better mood they're able to put aside the things that are troubling them um they're able to connect and work with each other it builds community it builds the relationships um it's just a powerful way of living and teaching um that i wish more of us could grasp because unfortunately the testing culture has scared us away from play oh i've got to teach such rigor 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 but what they don't realize is play is rigorous it is rigorous um, whether you are teaching about the american revolution through a, a play if you're learning about the cell through baking cookies and decorating them um you know it's it's it is rigorous and it and it sticks in it here's the part that i think people forget is that it sticks in our brain um how I will ask you, how did you learn your ABCs, Darren? Do you remember? Probably through a song. You remember learning yeah, your through a song. Through a song. Yeah. Guess what? Music, right. singing. It's it's a type of play. And every one of us, if I'm I, singing the song in American, my head now too. Yeah, Just you're so singing you know, your Jen, head the right song now. is running yeah. through my head. Yes. Yeah, of course it is. It is everybody who's listening. We're all singing it right now. Yeah. Um, right. It's because that's a nationwide sing along. Yeah, we could all sing it. Uh, now we all have we all have different endings. You know, some of you say next time won't you sing with me or uh, next time join me. You know, there's always a different ending, um, but the letters and the tune are the same, right? Um, right. That was a form of play, and it's stuck. 
Um, and if I ask your listeners to recall the most memorable lessons from their elementary, middle, high school careers, it's going to be something where they had an emotional connection. There was movement, there was song, there was the arts, there was play. Nobody remembers a lecture. Nobody remembers a PowerPoint. No. <laughs> you just don't, right? No. So no, when I run into students now, you know, or, or, you know, hear from them online or something, nobody's like, man, I'll tell you what, that lecture you gave us on, you know, the bones of the body or on, yeah. you know, the electron transport chain process. I was a high school science teacher. Uh, nobody, yeah. nobody says that, Yeah, you know, but you're no, right. right. It's but always, me... how did it make you feel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think about somebody out there saying, oh, I do remember my professor's lecture about so-and-so. But here's the thing. If the lecture is delivered in costume, if the, the lecture, if the lecture is delivered in like a soliloquy or like poet, uh, poetry form or dramatic form, that's bringing in elements of play. That's why they were, that's why you remember it. You're yeah. not remembering so much the content, but the way that it was delivered because you had an emotional oh, yeah. connection to it. Play brings in the emotional connection. Um, and we remember it. We remember those things. Hey leaders, let me tell you a story. It's the story of my first year as a high school principal. I will tell you, I was exhausted, I was overwhelmed, and I lived my life breathing through a snorkel because my head was so far underwater and I didn't think there was a way out. I mean, I was a mess. The 40 feet that it was to move from my assistant principal office down to the principal's office might as well have been a 400-mile trek. I was just absolutely putting in crazy hours. I was trying to do it all, like trying to answer everybody's question, thinking I always had to be the smartest one in the room, and I had to solve everybody's problems. We're talking severe superman syndrome here, folks. Every day was fire after fire, and all I accomplished was putting out fires. Forget about leading. I was simply trying to survive. Now, after working with a leadership coach, I really was able to get things figured out, get my head from being a firefighter to actually being a leader. But it took work, and I discovered some things that really mattered. And that's why I've created Walk in Your Purpose, Five Mindsets to Level Up Your Leadership, a free ebook that you can have today at no cost. Just go to walkinyourpurpose.roadtoawesome.net backslash ebook to download your free copy. Again, that's walkinyourpurpose.roadtoawesome.net backslash ebook. It's time for you to walk in your purpose, to find joy in your job, and to be the leader you always knew that you could be. So we're talking about activities that make you poop here on Leaning Into Leadership <laughs> Podcast. And we're talking a little bit about, uh, you know, some things that, um, that connect to how we use play and how really we should be taking a look at what's happening in our classrooms each and every day. And now as, as an elementary-based individual, Jen, I'm going to ask you, to mm -hmm. talk to me, the secondary only mm -hmm. guy, you know, I was a yeah. middle school classroom teacher and then I was a high school teacher, high school administrator, um, mm -hmm. superintendent that ran the gamut. But you mentioned, you know, high school, you know, we, we go from eight to three, they get a half hour lunch. If you had the opportunity or maybe you just have a, a suggestion for high school administrators what, what do we do differently? How do we incorporate play into the high school classroom so that it isn't just sit and get from eight to three? Right. I get that. So the first thing I think is you have to cultivate the environment where that is accepted and encouraged. Um, and the way that you do that is by the materials that you have in the room and the mindset which you approach it. Um, I walk into um, an elementary classroom there's going to be Play-Doh, there's going to be markers, there's going to be construction paper. If I walk into a high school classroom, there may not even be a colored pen other than the dry erase expo marker. Right. 
Right. So I think having having some playful materials readily available is part of creating that environment. You can get 50 cans of Play-Doh at Costco for 10 bucks, you know, and have that in your yeah. classroom. And, and let's say you're, I don't even, I can't even conceptualize what, what you're, what did you teach? Did you teach science? Did you say? Yeah, did I did. Talk? I taught life science. Mm-hmm. So, so like, let's say you, um, you want them to, I don't, I don't even know what's in life science. You're studying the earth, maybe a biome of earth. Sure. There um, you go. Yeah. We can do quickly, biomes yeah. quickly, quickly. Everybody's got a can of Play-Doh sculpt something you might see in an Arctic biome and boom, there you are. You've invited a moment of play. Now that, that could be a springboard that launches into your whole lesson and because they had that emotional, playful connection at the beginning, they're more in tune with what you're talking about. They're more in tune with the content and they're connecting everything you say back to their little Play-Doh. Now, if you take it this way, so let's say you got 20 kids and you're, well, let's say 30, let's be realistic, right? <laughs> There's 30 kids in your high school classroom. Everybody sculpted <laughs> yeah. something that I might, everybody for five minutes sculpted what they might see in an Arctic biome. And then you take two more minutes where you turn and talk to your neighbor and they talk about what they sculpted why they sculpted it, what they know about it. And so like if, if the person next to me read a book about an Arctic fox and they sculpted an Arctic fox and I've never heard of an Arctic fox, then I'm suddenly not learning just from you. I'm also learning from my peers. And it happened naturally through conversation, sociability, while we were playing with Play-Doh. And those are skills and, and content that, that I need, you need. Um, and then at the heart of it, you can, you can, as a teacher, you can also be very specific about what they are playing and doing. Like if you had something very specific that you need them to learn about the Arctic biome um, or some other area of content, then you, you sculpt something very specifically or you, you have markers where they doodle. I do something called Map-A-Doodle um, where I ask you to, it's kind of like sketch note, but sketch note sometimes feels a little intimidating to people, especially if you've seen, yeah. you know, um, Sylvia Duckworth. You draw sketch like notes. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do something called map a doodle. It's like, while I am talking about X topic, by the end of it, I want you to have five doodles that represents what I was talking about. So then it turns that lecture into a listen and doodle instead of just a, Oh, let me take notes. And, and what you're doing is they're still taking notes, but then you're connecting to that right side of their brain where the words and the visuals are coming together. So you, you're really working on that whole brain. I'm listening to your words and then I'm computing, oh, what does that look like? Putting it over to the right side of my brain and doodling a picture. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, I show them examples of some of my map of doodles and it's, they're hideous. Now, some of mine are good. I've gotten better over the years, but um <laughs> You know, I'm really good friends with um, Carrie Bauckham. I don't know if you know her. Um, she does something called Doodle and Chat. Um, if you don't know her, look her up. And all of you should uh, be watching Doodle and Chat. But uh, send her a message and tell her you want to be a guest on Doodle and Chat. And she talks with you just like we're doing. And at the end of the chat, she has doodled her way through our chat. So she's made this really cute sketch note um, of of your whole chat. It's a lot of fun. She's amazing. Um, I really love that she's got a partner stuff. and I'm, yeah, it's so, it's so awesome. It's fun. Yeah. It, it makes me think of, of a couple of people that, uh, every time, every time I'm around them, uh, Dr. Brandon Beck, who's a really, really good friend of mine, business mm-hmm. partner of mine, Brandon is the same way. I mean, it is just at the end of every conversation, he has this, he has a drawing and he has a, you know, a million different things. Um, mm-hmm. mutual friend of ours, uh, Jillian Bois, same thing. Jillian though, her sketch notes are a work of art and that's not, yeah, that's not being flippant. It, truly they're a work yeah. of art. Yeah. Uh, she's, yeah. she's they a are. brilliant artist, yep. but, but, but play in the classroom and just some of the things that you gave examples took me back to a couple of teachers that, uh, that I was fortunate to work with as, uh, as a school administrator, one that, that our listeners probably know, uh, Bradley W. Skinner, um, another, um, a lady named Julie Weir, who's one of the greatest teachers I've ever, ever been around high level math. We're talking like pre-calculus algebra, mm-hmm. but she had kids with markers on their desk and they actually would practice their equations in dry erase marker on the desktop. And, you know, I mean, just, I would think even just, she even told me once, she's like the smell of the expo expo marker is going to help embed what they're doing. And I just thought that was super powerful. And that's 
it's, yeah. it's making that emotional connection, you know. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things we talk about in the in the book is not trying to totally transform everything that you're doing, but start with the nooks and crannies. And that dry erase marker on the desk, that's a nook and cranny. That's something really small in a, in a space of your time that, that is going to have big impacts. The students are going to remember that. They're going to visualize that. Yeah. They're going to see the images in their head of, you know, the equation that they wrote on the desk because maybe they did a little doodle beside of it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of my high school teachers, her name's Miss Jackson, that I had when I was in 11th grade. She taught uh, 11th grade geometry. And it wasn't that she delivered the content in this crazy, fun, playful way. But she had this crazy, fun, playful space where we learned it. You know, she was doing flexible seating in the mid-90s before it was ever a thing. She had um, fun music playing. Um, she had this uh, little sticker chart where every time you solved a proof, you got a little sticker. Uh, like those old school foil stars. And once yeah. you got three stars, once you got three stars, you got a blow pop. And on the blow pop, she had this little flag on it. It said, you really blew it away today. And you could, you could have that, you could, you could use that, you could take that blow pop and eat it anywhere in the school as long as it had that flag on it. Um, and that was back in the mid nineties when like gum in the classroom was like, no way you did not chew gum at school. I don't know if it's still that, but yeah. you did not chew gum at school. But if you had that stick, you could chew that blow pop gum. She just made it fun. You know, she just yeah. made the learning fun. And, and there's too many of us out there that that don't understand the neurological impact of what that does. You know, it's not fluff. It's not flippant. And if you do it intentionally, it really makes the learning stick. It makes it connect to their real lives. It, it, it embraces the humanity of our work, I think, um, a little more. Um, I just and that's that's my mission, man. That's what I'm trying to be out there doing is helping people just to have more fun with what we're doing. And, um, look for those nooks and crannies because the nooks and crannies will lead to big change across the board. So let's uh, absolutely love that. I love number one. I love that you you have a you know a personal and professional mission. Um, I think a lot of times you know let, let's let's be straight. The whole know your why thing has kind of gotten beat into mm -hmm. the ground, mm -hmm. but you know knowing that personal mission, that professional mission, I think is super super powerful. And number two. I know that that has driven work not just in playful classroom, but in this new project that you have mm -hmm. um, with yeah. with the courageous classroom. And so I want to get mm -hmm. into that a little bit too, and how um, actually when you and I met a week or two ago uh, to have a conversation prior to recording this podcast, mm -hmm. you had even told me that you know, hey, courageous classroom. I kind of wish I'd written that first before yeah. this other stuff. So yeah. so maybe tell us a little bit about Courageous Classroom and then hopefully we'll have a chance to chase that thought as well. So yeah, so the Courageous Classroom, it is it is it tackles two um two concerns, issues in our in our public spaces, um, in the classrooms. One is the role that fear and trauma are playing, having on our students. Um, and how that affects their ability to learn and how that affects their their moods at school, their attitudes at school, but also how that fear and trauma is affecting us as teachers in that we are carrying some of that fear and trauma of our students. But also there's a lot of teachers out there that have their own fear and trauma that they're processing while they are also helping their students and um, I wrote that book with a psychiatrist from Florida. Her name's Dr. Janet Taylor. She is amazing. She is a special guest on the uh, Good Morning America quite often. You know how when they have a, um, a segment where they need some expert analysis, so they bring in so-and-so doctor. Um, she oh, she yeah. does that for, the, for Good Morning America. They call her Dr. Janet. And um, writing this with her, she just helped me to understand in a big picture kind of way how how fear and trauma has a lot of us just in its grips at all times. Um, and then as I got to talking with her, um, you know, I, I'm a very big proponent of therapy. I go to therapy every other week, um, have for several years now. Um, there's lots of trauma that I dealt with as a child in my own life. Um, being a gay man um, in the South is traumatic just to exist down here. But as a kid, not knowing, any, I wasn't out as a kid. I didn't come out as an adult. Um, so I there's lots of trauma there. I had a father who was not accepting, who was abusive, 
in all the ways. Um, and so that trauma still lingers as an adult for me. So when I'm in a classroom where um, a student is being physically abused or where students being molested um, or where a student is obviously not following the gender norms of the society or is being picked on or bullied, it, it brings a lot of that back for me. Um, and that is teachers need to be aware of their own trauma so that they can help the students that are experiencing the trauma or, or Sometimes teachers can actually trigger the trauma and not mean to. This, this book breaks all that down. And it, it sounds confusing to kind of talk about it. You need to read the book. But um, it, it's just we need courageous classrooms because we need teachers who are willing to stand up and say, yes, I have dealt with this. Or, yes, I may have accidentally triggered this. Uh, we need to we need to face these problems uh, collectively. I wish every district in this, the world, every school in the world, had a therapist on staff for teachers. Um, our work is heavy. Our work is hard. Um, it, and people say, oh, well, you must be talking about those poor schools. No, I'm talking about the schools that are affluent. Um, there are parents of affluent kids that are inflicting just as much trauma on those kids as um, a school that is, you know, 90% poverty. Um, abuse does not know um, wealth or poverty. It's, it's across the board. Um, there are students that I knew that came from very affluent homes where I think they're being abused spiritually, meaning they are being condemned to hell. They are being condemned um, socially. They're being um, kept from things because of uh, strict religious dogma. And that's abuse in the long run. Uh, what that does to a, a child mentally when they grow up, it's hard to overcome those things. Um, and, you know, there are students in, in, in poor homes that are being abused, not necessarily because the parents are mean, because the parents are, are poor and they don't know how to handle the stress of that. Um, and they take it out on their child. And it's not a justification of that at all. Um, but there's lots of factors that play into fear and trauma. Um, in the book, we talk about um, adverse childhood experiences test, um, quiz that you could take online to see, um, kind of examine your own self-trauma, but then... Um, Think about your students and what trauma they are facing. And uh, we give you strategies to how to deal with those students. And um, um, every, almost every chapter of the book, there's a, well, there is every chapter of the book. There's a moment where <laughs> it was kind of like therapy for me. I would talk to Janet and I would tell her about a concern that I had with a former student or something that had happened with me and, and how it played out in my classroom. And um, she gives me some therapy. She gives you some advice. Um, on how I handled it, how I could have handled it differently. Um, I think that's one of the most powerful parts of the book because it's, it, it will be like you are laying on a couch uh, with a therapist getting some advice about teaching and how to help your students. So it's a great book. The reason I wish I would have written it first um, is because I think that, that a big piece of the healing of trauma is inviting play into our spaces because play is what helps us to rewire our brain to form new memories, to form new connections. Um, and it helps us to heal some of that past. And I wish that I would have written that first because I think play is the answer to that. And play comes in many forms. It can be reading. It can be art. It can be sports. Um, it can be walking around your neighborhood. It can be organizing a closet. It can be um, admiring your pen collection. <laughs> play is in uh, many different forms and, and ways. So um, I wish I would have written this work first because I think the answer to the trauma is is more playful in teaching and playful living. That's really powerful and, and it makes me think too in addition to you know we, we've always owned our own you know trauma and stresses and those mm -hmm. types of things and then there's this collective trauma that all of us experienced you know in the last you know two and a half three years absolutely that mm -hmm. um, that I think a lot of people have not necessarily worked through or processed well it mm -hmm. kind of goes back to some of you know what you talk about with um just the way that we lash out on social media and some of the negative comments and you know the 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 loss or the death of of appropriate discourse uh between mm -hmm. human beings but but focusing on our teachers i think that's something that's really powerful for our schools for our school leaders to really keep in mind that in many cases and i know we're worried about 
you know, a nationwide teacher shortage and, you know, people just stepping away, even outside of the teaching profession, just, you know, work in general, people are saying, Mm -hmm. hey, I got to do something Mm -hmm. different. And I think a lot of that is a response to those particular traumas and, you know, different Mm -hmm. experiences all, you know, done in different ways. Uh, I mean, I even think about my own probably unprocessed trauma from that time. I was a superintendent during that window of time. And, oh my goodness, the the amount of stress and just mental anguish for me yeah. trying to lead yeah. through that process. Um, yeah. it, again, where, where it takes me is just us being mindful of, in addition to all those other, what life brings us traumas, mm-hmm. that particular shared trauma mm-hmm. is something that I think everybody needs to be at least aware of to be thinking mm-hmm. about whether or not they're doing something intentionally with their school. But, but certainly it sounds like this book is a great place to begin. It is. A, it, I think so. Um, and it came out in the summer of 21. Um, so we wrote uh, most of it, you know, in the thick of the pandemic of 2020. Um, I, I, now that I look back on it, I wish we, we talk about the pandemic and I wish we would have talked about more about the collective trauma of it. But I think at that time we didn't even know, the depth of the collective trauma because we were still in no. it, you know, we were still in the midst of it. Right. But, you know, I, I think, you know, we all experienced the pandemic very differently, but the one thing that we all got out of the pandemic traumatic wise is how fragile the entire world is and how in a moment it could all go off the rails. Um, and that was traumatic. I think for all of us, regardless of whether you experienced the pandemic in a, um, you know, 5,000 square foot house, or a 800 square foot apartment, you experience the fragility of our world and that's traumatic. And it happened so quickly one time, could it happen again? It's put us all on edge. Um, and you know, teachers, I wish, I wish that our country would understand teachers. We are the first line of defense for the trauma. Um, and I, it, you know, I know people say, oh, well, our job is to teach content, teach curriculum. But you can't teach people. You can't teach people who are carrying this trauma. Um, there, there are neuro um, blocks in your brain that prohibit the learning from from resting and from sticking. Um, if you have these things going on in your life, you know your basic needs. If you don't have food, water, shelter, safety, um, you are not able to learn at the same way those other students. And we as teachers, we have to be more aware of trauma, what it's doing to our students and how we can be the first line of defense so that, you know, man, I know some teachers who, man, they trigger trauma and some of them do it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, some of them yeah, do it on purpose. I, I worked with a lady. I worked, I worked with a lady one time. She, she was triggered all the time and she would trigger other children and set them off. And it used to drive me insane. I was like, this lady, this is horrible. Um, you know, and it just, we have to be aware what we do is so much more than reading, writing, math, science, social studies. It is so much more. Um, I don't, I want it to be just read. I just want it to be content, but it can't be because of the humanity of us. You know, we have every student that we have has a different story. They have a different uh, brain. They have a different way of learning. They have different talents to show off that learning. You know, it kills me when the, we have one type of assessment, uh, fill in these bubbles, fill in the blanks. And, and that's good for one kind of student, but the other student, man, the other student could have wrote a, a screenplay about the learning or they could have created one hell of a diorama, you know, but we don't offer those options. All of my work, I try to focus it on the humanity of what we're doing more than the content of what I'm doing. I think that the okay. human piece is what's so vital to our work and all three books um, focus on that. Um, two of them specifically with teaching. And then the third one, the playful life focuses on, you know, our wellness as human beings um, and how that can affect our lives, whether we're teachers and whether we're uh, pastors, whether we manage a bookstore, run a coffee shop, whatever we do. Um, I like to focus on the human piece. Excellent. All right. So, Jed, with that, let's jump to the final question, the same question I ask everybody here on the Leading into Leadership podcast. How right now, Jed, are you leading into leadership? Well, I'll tell you how I am doing it right now. My word for the year 
um, is, is for 2023 is rest. And I have been talking about that on my social media and I've been talking about that with friends in my real life. And it, I've been talking about it with my therapist and I'm not talking necessarily about physical rest as much as I am talking about mental rest. Uh, this year, I am going to be very diligent about choosing um, the work that I do. I'm going to be very diligent about um, choosing um, in conversations that I engage with in, in person and online. Um, if I feel like those are going to be very taxing mentally, I'm going to take a pause. And how is that linking to leading? I am leading by modeling um, to others the work that I've written about. Um, in the Courageous Classroom, we talk about the need for mental rest, and I am focused on mental rest because um, the last 10 years of my life have been very unstable mentally in that I went through a lot of changes. In the last 10 years of my life, I left elementary teaching, I left the church, I came out as a gay man, and all of those things caused a lot of, lot of mental changes, a lot of new endeavors. And the last 10 years have been very taxing mentally. Um, I got forced out of a job for being gay. Um, I got blasted online for being gay. I got had some events canceled because they thought I was a, an activist. <laughs> it's just been a lot of mental taxing over the last decade. And, and I just needed to focus on some mental rest. Uh, the Playful Classroom talks about how, uh, in the Playful Life specifically, talks about the power of play in our life and, and, and what it does for your brain. And I was like, you know, I'm talking about all these things. I need to practice these things. So that's how I'm leading. I'm practicing what I preach this uh, year. That's outstanding. I really appreciate that. Jed, thank you so much for joining me here on the leading into leadership podcast, man. I uh, hope you have a great rest of your week and uh, best of luck with rest this year in 2023. Yeah. Thanks, Nair. Thanks for having me on. What a fantastic conversation with Jed Derryberry. I appreciate him coming on the show. I do have for you linked in the show notes uh, the links to go uh, purchase all three of his books. Make sure you check those out. Um, again, I appreciate him being a part of the conversation. And now it's time for a pep talk. You know, Jed talked about right towards the end when he talked about how he's leaning into leadership. He talked about leaning into rest and taking care of himself. And I think that's an important lesson for each and every one of us to just simply remember that we need to take care of ourselves and that we can't pour into anyone's cup when our cup is empty. Um, I appreciated how he talked about modeling that taking mental rest and taking the physical rest as well. It's crucial, folks. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. I mean, at this time of the year, it's really easy to get run down. You know, you can kind of see the finish line out there. It's not too far away, but we can easily get ourselves overwhelmed and exhausted at this time. So please make sure you're taking care of yourself. That is your pep talk for this week. Thank you for joining me on Leaning Into Leadership. Get out there. Have a road to awesome day. Thank you for listening to the Leaning Into Leadership podcast brought to you by Road to Awesome. Don't forget, click subscribe, give a review, and share this with somebody who might also enjoy leaning into leadership.